Oral questions by members? Opposition House Leader. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, as the NDP continue to delay, British Columbians continue to be randomly attacked and violently assaulted in communities all across this province. Yesterday, we learned of a horrific random attack where a man threw coffee on a mother and her baby in a stroller in downtown Victoria, a very short walking distance from this legislature. But instead of taking action to keep British Columbians safe, the Attorney General says, and I quote, random attacks are a fact of life, end quote. Can the Attorney General imagine looking into the eyes of this mother and against the backdrop of her being assaulted and her baby being assaulted, can the Attorney General imagine saying to this woman that what happened to her and her child is just a fact of life? Attorney General. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The story, of course, is well known to me and our community. It is horrific. It is unacceptable. It's frustrating to all of us that these attacks still occur in a civilized society. We are taking the steps needed to address this issue on an urgent basis. We do not know, however, the facts of this particular incident, but we do know that steps must be taken and will be taken. Opposition House Leader, supplemental. The, the reality is, Mr. Speaker, that uh, that has been the message from this Attorney General for weeks and weeks. He keeps saying, we're going to take action, we're going to review, we're going to consider, we're going to have a meeting, we're going to review again. And British Columbians continue to be subjected to these random violent attacks. Four a day in Vancouver alone. They're taking place in, in Prince George and Kamloops, Nanaimo, and steps away from this legislature. These are terrifying attacks that are, are leaving British Columbians not just traumatized, but wondering when their government will actually follow through with real action to keep them safe. Attacks like a young woman hit with a steel pipe, a baby in a stroller attacked with a glass bottle, and as I mentioned now, another mother and her baby attacked steps away from the legislature. Just this week in Nanaimo, a prolific offender with an extensive criminal history hit a man in the head with a pipe in a completely unprovoked and violent attack. <clears throat> and yesterday, Victoria's police chief said, and I quote, the level of violence we're seeing on our streets is second to none, end quote. So my question to the Attorney General again, how many more British Columbians need to be randomly attacked before this NDP government will prioritize the right of people's the right of people to be safe in their communities over the rights of prolific offenders to reoffend. Attorney General. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, there must be consequences for criminal acts. We do not know, however, on the, in the circumstances of the case to which the member refers, whether this indeed was an issue of a prolific offender or repeat offender. We are going to bring back, as we've announced, the prolific offender program, which the last government cut and which had a 40% a year uh, recidivism reduction. We think that will make a difference. We also believe to, that we not only have to go be tough on crime, but we have to be tough on the causes of crime, Mr. Speaker. And that requires 
enormous social investments, investments this government has made and will continue to make, investments in wraparound housing for complex care, for which we are housing 500 people and spending $164 million in the last budget. Mr. Speaker, one of the key recommendations of the Lepard-Butler report was the need to ex extend our peer-assisted care teams. People with uh, themselves uh, involvement in mental health issues or uh, drug abuse in the past who were there to assist the police in ensuring that our streets are safe and we're rolling out those uh, those programs across uh, the, the province. In addition, I've talked of the community transition teams where people who leave our, our, our penal institutions are given support for not just 30 days, but now 90 days. And not just five uh, of those facilities, but every single one in British Columbia. Mr. Speaker, these changes require enormous investments. And I am not sure, Mr. Speaker, if the people of British Columbia think the government, if this party across the way were in government, they would make the kind of investments we are in light of their massive cuts, in light of their massive cuts to social programs when they were on this side of the members, House. Members, members. Member for City South. Mr. Speaker, I'm very glad that the Attorney General brought up the Lepard report. You know, the problem is that this government isn't enforcing the law and criminals know it. This week, the NDP's hand-picked expert, Doug Lepard, contradicted the NDP's false claim that BC is the same as everywhere else. He told a public panel that unlike every other province, where they're back to pre-pandemic levels, that there's been a 40% decrease in the number of people in jail in BC because of this government's policy not to remand violent, prolific offenders. Lepard even said, and I quote, when we suggested being more assertive and seeking detention for offenders who breach their conditions over and over and over again, I have to say, we got pushback on that, end quote. So my question, Mr. Speaker, is when will the NDP scrap the incoming soft-on-crime premiers, catch-and-release system, and start keeping violent, prolific offenders in jail? Attorney General. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. Um, there are always differences in trends between jurisdictions, but I have heard loud and clear from all the provinces that they're facing the same issue of repeat members, offenders. Members, please. I spoke earlier this week with the Ontario Public Safety Minister, the Honourable Michael Kersner, and compared notes with him about the issues he's facing in the City of Toronto. Mr. Speaker, they are they, are, have a, they have a different charging standard, as the honourable member may be aware. And, Mr. Speaker, they are facing, notwithstanding the difference in charging standard, where the police charge rather than Crown Council make the final decision, they are facing precisely the same issues as we are. And that is why this national challenge has to be addressed not just by the provinces in conjunction with municipalities, as we're doing, but also with the federal government. And I'm working 
hard to work with our federal colleagues in order to see that they come to the table and make reforms they need to make as well. I believe, Mr. Speaker, the House and the people of British Columbia would expect an all-hands-on-deck approach involving every level of government. That's exactly what we're doing. Member for South Supplemental. Well, Mr. Speaker, I guess we have the Attorney General contradicting their own expert once again. But time after time, this government fails to ensure that prosecutors use every tool under the law to seek detention of violent, prolific offenders. Justin Collins, a prolific offender with over 421 police files, released with the agreement of Crown prosecutors on charges that included assaulting a police officer. Mohammed Majipur, a prolific offender with 30 convictions for assault and assault with a weapon, released and reoffends just two hours later. And Tyler Newton, a convicted killer with 51 convictions, released with the agreement of Crown prosecutors this last weekend for over six months. We have called on the NDP to issue a directive to Crown prosecutors that puts the rights of the community to feel safe ahead of criminals' rights to reoffend. How many more violent, prolific offenders will be released onto our streets before this NDP government takes action? Attorney General. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. These acts of violence are obviously unacceptable to all of us, and those who commit them must face consequences. I've said that we have been examining the issue of directives and will continue to examine uh, the issue as well. As I indicated to the House last week, I've received legal advice that the directive... Members, members, please. Minister, continue. I have received legal advice that one option that was suggested by the Honourable Opposition Member from uh, Abbotsford West was not in, com in compliance with the Criminal Code. doesn't mean we're not looking at the issue, Mr. Speaker, but we cannot and will not issue a directive that is contrary to the Criminal Code of Canada or the Charter of Rights. That is why we're working to secure, as I've said in this House, a national commitment to take the concrete actions we need to address the unintended consequences of the Bail Reform Initiative, and we're going to continue at the same time to strengthen enforcement along the, along the lines of the programs that I've discussed earlier, which require massive investments of social capital, which we are doing. House Leader, third party. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. We know how, and we've heard uh, from all of our constituents, how inflation is impacting individuals, but it's also impacting our public education system. School districts are challenged in addressing unfunded inflationary pressures, Mr. Speaker. For many years, the funding rates have been, have been adjusted for the cost of the collective agreements. That means that all the other inflationary costs go unfunded. That includes exempt staff, benefit cost escalation, and service and supply inflation. The conservative cost of inflationary pressure in one school district in my riding is $1.2 million this year. What does that mean? Well, it means tough decisions for the incoming school board trustees, potentially less support staff, less resources for students with high needs, less arts. In districts where stable or declining enrollment exists, they simply cannot absorb these inflationary pressures year after year after year. Mr. Speaker, every 
dollar of unfunded inflationary pressures in a school district is a dollar not spent on a vulnerable child. Through you, Mr. Speaker, to the Minister of Education, it might be that the ministry just doesn't know the increasingly unsustainable difference between the increased rates of funding and increased costs to school districts. It could be as simple as the ministry doesn't know the extent of the gap. The school districts do, though, Mr. Speaker. Will the minister commit to fund undertaking a full review and fund the gaps that are identified? Minister of Finance. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. I know that the member is well aware that bargaining has uh, been undertaken now with um, all of our public service sector, and that's certainly part of the conversation, the shared mandate. Um, uh, that we have, the shared recovery mandate that we have set, set in motion. Um, and uh, we engage regularly with all of our <clears throat> partners around how these global inflationary pressures are affecting service delivery. Um, I also want to point out, and the member might not be aware, <clears throat> that uh, this past summer, we, um, recognizing some of the significant challenges that families were, were experiencing, and that puts pressure on schools, was we, um, allocated $60 million so that um, school districts had additional resources to help families with, with food programs, to help uh, with expenses like school supplies. And I know that uh, school districts uh, right around the province uh, were very uh, um, relieved to receive these additional funds, recognizing the additional pressures that families were under and that schools were under as a result of uh, global inflation. Third party house leader supplemental. Um, thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is not about the collective bargaining process that is underway. I understand that it's underway. That's not what my question is about. My question is not about a food program in schools. I think the school districts appreciate that. My question is about the unfunded inflationary pressures that school districts across the province, specifically those school districts that are not experiencing high growth in their, in their communities, are facing due to the fact that this government continues to only fund the increases that are agreed through collective bargaining and not the uh, increases for exempt staff, say for an example, or for the benefits, for an example, or for the cost of everything that a school district needs uh, to, to supply their schools with so that our children can get a quality public education. If you consider inflation, Mr. Speaker, the funding for our public schools hasn't gone up at all. The percentage of GDP we put into our public schools has declined dramatically over decades and is well behind other provinces. I've heard stories of schools overrun with rats, children with disabilities told to stay home because there's just no support for them. Meanwhile, we're struggling with a massive teacher shortage. The BCTF president has been pretty clear why we can't retain teachers, Mr. Speaker. The high cost of living, inflation, the fact that BC teacher salaries are the second lowest in Canada, teachers can't afford to work here. Staffing shortages are so severe that in some districts they're advertising for uncertified teachers. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Minister of Education, the Minister's mandate letter promises quality public education and more investment, but our kids keep getting shortchanged by this BC NDP government. Why isn't this government funding public education like it's a priority? Minister of Finance. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Children are our most precious resource, Mr. Speaker, and that's why from 2017 to 2021, we've had the fastest rate of investment in K-12 in this province's history. 
That's why we haven't been investing in public education. It's why, uh, the member says this isn't about bargaining, and it is about bargaining. His examples were about bargaining, and that is why we're, we're, we have um, a shared recovery mandate, Mr. Speaker. It's also why we have been funding playgrounds, because we recognize how important they are to the education system, and parents were tired of having to fundraise for playgrounds. That's why we are funding development of play playgrounds. It's why we're funding uh, fully school buses and energy costs, a new in Indigenous student supplement. Mr. Speaker, we're going to continue investing in our children because that's the most precious resource we have. Member for Nechako Lakes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to ask a question today, especially in light of the shenanigans that the BC Liberals undertook last Thursday to try to prevent me from speaking. And I understand why they're concerned, as they have refused to speak up to defend BC's agricultural sector. Tuesday was Agriculture Day in BC, and both sides of the legislature spoke eloquently about the importance of, of our ag sector. But Canada is proposing a 30% reduction in nitrogen-based fertilizer and to reduce emissions from cattle by 30% by 2030. This has the potential to devastate BC's agriculture sector. To the Minister of Agriculture, can the Ministry provide this legislature any analysis on the impacts of those policies on the BC agricultural sector? Minister of Agriculture. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and, and thank you to the member for the great question. Uh, we were to sit down this week to have a meeting, but it was rescheduled. I look forward to continuing our discussions uh, at lunch next week. But to the member's question, um, we did have BC Ag Days here in the legislature this week, and I know farmers are dealing with a variety of challenges, whether it's global inflation affecting the cost of doing business or the impacts of climate change. We're all concerned about emissions and how the impacts and the impacts that it's having on our, our changing climate and the, the ways that farmers are being affected. But I can also tell the member that there has been some miscommunication around uh, of the statement that he made. I, uh, I was in the room in Saskatoon at the FPT meeting this summer where we discussed this very issue. And I can tell you it's my, uh, it was very clear to me and it's my understanding that it's not a 30% reduction in fertilizers, it's a 30% reduction in the emissions from fertilizers. That changes things quite a lot, but unfortunately the, um, the the narrative continued, and it, the reason why it's so unfortunate is it has put a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on our farmers, so I'm really happy to have the opportunity to clear that up for them. I just also wanted to add that along with this voluntary policy or voluntary, uh, I guess, policy from the federal government, um, it comes with some really interesting opportunities for us here in British Columbia. We've got incredible agri-tech companies that are working uh, with farmers to create products uh, and technology to help farmers be uh, more successful and also to add more tools to the toolbox when they're fighting the issues of climate change. Uh, I look forward to discussing some of those initiatives with the member later next week. Member for Nichakolik, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I want to thank the, the Minister for response. Well, the paper that the federal government put out is pretty clear in terms of the reductions. 
But this, this policy is not just about Canada. It has been done in other jurisdictions. The reduction of nitrogen-based fertilizer and cattle emissions has been implemented in Sri Lanka. And in the first year, it contributed to a 30% reduction in rice yields and an 18% reduction in their primary export crop, which is tea. This has led to food shortages and civil unrest. And in the Netherlands, the proposal has caused massive protests that have spread throughout Europe. Their governments predict that the policy means the elimination of about 20% of the farms and a 30% reduction in beef production. This will negatively contribute to the global food shortages where some 345 million people are facing severe food insecurity. To the minister, has BC submitted a response to the federal government? And if so, will she table that response in the legislature today? Minister of Agriculture. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thanks again for the question. Um, no, I have not made a submission to the federal government because I was in the room when the discussion was happening. It was very clear that the reduction uh, was on emissions from fertilizers and not on the nitrogen fertilizers themselves. Um, but again, it's, uh, there was a, um, a discussion paper that the federal government put out it was the discussion paper closed off at the end of, of August. There's a lot of input that's coming in from farmers who are very concerned about this issue. But uh, because I was in the room and I heard what the federal minister said, um, I, I feel uh, confident that we won't see uh, us going down that path. But again, I'd like to say that this brings opportunities for us. Farmers are looking for opportunities to uh, be, have more tools in their toolbox to fight climate change and to be part of the solution. There's an amazing uh, Vancouver-based company called Lucent Biosciences, and they're creating a, a fertilizer product that uses food waste along with conventional fertilizers to try and improve soil health as well as reduce emissions. And we're seeing some really uh, interesting results there. So I look forward to, hear, to uh, speaking further with the member next week, but his concerns uh, have been heard. Thank you. Member for Caribou-Chilcotin. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. While our health care system collapses, a bloated NDP bureaucracy continues to cash six-figure paychecks. Let's look at Island Health, just one of six health authorities that report to this health minister. 13 members of an executive team plus another 51 executive directors. 51 executive directors. There is even a vice president of communications plus four executive directors of communications, including the former NDP director of caucus communications. This former NDP staffer is now the executive director of brand and digital communications. Why on earth does a health system need executives for a brand? Well, Mr. Speaker, the truth is the brand isn't doing so hot right now. Not when one in five people don't have a family doctor. Can the minister explain why cushy bureaucratic appointments are more important than helping the one in five people in British Columbia that don't have a doctor? Minister of Health. Uh, Honourable Speaker, um, British Columbia has led Canada in uh, hiring registered nurses. Since I became Minister of Health, we were 10th in Canada when I took over, Honourable Speaker. 
With respect to executives, the member refers to the Vice President of Communications of the Vancouver Island Health Authority. That person is Jamie Bremer, Honourable Speaker. It was Jamie Bremer when I was named Minister of Health. It's Jamie Bremer today. Mr. Bremer, as members of the House will know, on the opposition side, was a former Liberal Ministerial Assistant, oh Honourable Speaker, who, uh, Honourable Speaker, I think, has done excellent work for us. It demonstrates our approach, Honourable Speaker. With respect to the comments made by uh, the member and the opposition House Leader in the House a couple of days ago, Honourable Speaker, we have reduced the administrative burden as a share of health system expenditures from the time when the Liberals were in office. We reduced it, Honourable Speaker. This, this by measurement, the independent measurement of the Canadian Institute for, by health, for Health Information, and our own, Honourable Speaker. When you look at Honourable Speaker, they talked about the Vice Presidents, how much were, they were paid, and the information they provided, uh, I'm sure inadvertently, was entirely incorrect, Honourable Speaker, entirely incorrect that they provided. In fact, Honourable Speaker, we have added six Vice Presidents for Indigenous Health and an initiative supported by the Opposition, as I understand it, and supported by the people of BC. Otherwise, net number of Vice Presidents is one less than it was on the previous BC Liberal Government, Honourable Speaker. So, reduce the administrative burden, members, reduce the administrative burden members, the members, for health members. information, and kept people in place regardless of their partisan affiliation when they do a good job. Members, let's, let's, let's hear the next question. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, well, the minister might want to check the websites of all of the health authorities where uh, all of their executives are listed uh, and comp uh, compensation. Um, uh, there's org charts, pictures, uh, which may be helpful for him. Um, we have 64 VPs in health authorities in British Columbia, while in um, Alberta with a very similar population, uh, there are nine. Uh, so we have to look at how are we managing the administrative costs of our health services budget here. Now, in Vancouver Coastal, there are 17 senior executives, including a vice president who made $463,000 last year, Mr. Speaker. This bloated uh, NDP bureaucracy has done nothing for patient care. When a woman was left to die unattended in a closet of the Lionsgate emergency room, this minister claimed that she received, quote, substantial care, end quote. Apparently, this minister's definition of substantial care is the family finding their loved one dead in a closet. So can the minister tell the nurses at Lionsgate Hospital and the family of those who have died in this health care crisis why he employs 64 vice presidents and can't ensure there is access to basic health care in this province. Here, here. Minister of Health. Honourable Speaker, uh, I, I think the facts are the facts that the uh, Canadian Institute for Health Information measures administration as a burden on the health care system. The Canadian average is 4.4%. We're at 3.3%, which is 25% lower. But you know, Honourable Speaker, we, we want it, and we want to continue to ensure administrative savings are there. But I, I want to say, Honourable Speaker, that I think our health care teams, including the presence of our health authorities, 
who receive, often receive very significant criticism, but have worked with a dedication that is extraordinary, honorable speaker, uh, deserve, I think, a degree of respect in this legislature. In the Northern Health Authority, Kathy Ulrich, who is our outstanding president and CEO in the Northern Health Authority, has reduced administrative expenses as a share of the budget from 10.1% to 8.8%. 10.1% the last year of Liberal government, 8.8% this past year during a pandemic, wow. Honorable Speaker. So what we're saying, Honorable Speaker, is we're re we've reduced administration, and the reason, and the reason she's done that, is her focus and our focus in the North, in the interior, in Vancouver Coastal, and everywhere, in ensuring we hire frontline staff to provide services for people. There are significant challenges in two public health emergencies, Honorable Speaker, but our health, health authority CEOs have reduced administration costs as a share of the budget from the time when the Liberals were in office, according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and according to the facts. And Honorable Speaker, this suggestion that there are, uh, there are hundreds of people earning over $400,000 a year is inaccurate. Um, the opposition knows it. How you do it, if you want to do an average, is you take the total amount of compensation and you divide it by the total number of vice presidents. It's not that hard, Honorable Speaker. And I would say, Honorable Speaker, with great respect, that our healthcare teams have done a good job. Can we reduce administration costs further? Yes, we can, and we're going to continue to strive to do that. But we have done that as compared to their record in government. Member for Prince George Wilmount. Well, I, I, again, we have an example of NDP math by this minister. It's <laughs> exactly what he's doing. And, and the minister. Well, while the members on the other side of the House might think it's funny, British Columbians do not think it's funny that there are 64 vice presidents. And if the minister doesn't want to check it out, go to the website. Because you know what? To the minister, there are names and photographs and positions, and there are 64 vice presidents. And this minister has actually, uh, during the time of his watch, spent an extra $1.3 billion on health administration. And the minister can hold up his hands and complain all he wants. And he wants to talk about measurement. Here's the measurement that British Columbians care about. One in five people in this province can't get a family doctor. British Columbians are scared to death that they're going to sit on a waiting list of a specialist, that they're going to be one of the people who face a tsunami of late-stage cancer cases. And what does this minister do? He gets up and defends the spending, additional spending, of $1 billion on administration in British Columbia. British Columbians are tired of that. Let's hear what Jory, what Jerry had to say. Mr. Speaker? Well, we'll get the question. Continue, please. Here's what Jerry had to say to the minister. I just went through a personal 19-hour-long ordeal in the ER in New West, seeking urgent medical attention. It was an awful experience. Among many others, there in the ER, left waiting, end quote. That's the legacy of this minister and this government. Administrative costs, excuses in this legislature, day after day after day. We raise cases about people who have lost their lives, 
people who can't get a doctor, people who are terrified about their future under the health care system that this minister is in charge of. It's long past time for change. And frankly, that change starts at the top. So will the minister do the right thing, listen to British Columbians, and resign? Minister of Health. Well, uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Uh, Honourable Speaker, I am proud of the work our health care teams. And the, you know, Honourable Speaker, one word of heckle, and there's stop over there, and then uh, one sentence of response, and there's heckling. I take, the, I, take these, I take these issues very seriously, and the member doesn't have to tell, the member doesn't have to tell me anything about what goes on in the emergency room at Royal. Members, 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 please. Members. Sorry, if the member would allow me to speak, Honourable Speaker, uh, doesn't have to tell me anything about Royal Columbian Hospital or its emergency room. I've spent lots of time there, and I've spent lots of time there recently, Honourable Speaker. So I don't, I don't need those lessons. I understand how hard our teams are working and the struggles people face. And that's why I work, and I think our whole healthcare team works so hard Honourable Speaker, to deliver services, to add services, to add services in communities. In her own health authority, we've gone from spending 10.3% of every dollar on administration, under her government's watch when she sat there at the Executive Council, to 8.8%. And that's because of the work of people such as Kathy Ulrich. And what that means is more health care dollars providing care to people in primary care and in long-term care and in surgeries, Honourable Speaker. We've added in her health authority, Honourable Speaker, more than double the number of MRIs per capita in her health authority. We've added 17 new MRI machines. We've added, on an annual basis, 120,000 more exams, Honourable Speaker. We've done record number of surgeries in September in a pandemic. Here in the hospital, we reduce wait lists in a pandemic for surgeries in BC, Honourable Speaker. I think, Honourable Speaker, our focus is service for patients on the ground, Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker, 90% of care homes didn't meet standards, Honourable Members. Speaker, under the previous government. We changed that. That's, that's, care for, that's care for seniors in long-term care. The facts are the facts, Honourable Speaker. The facts from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, the facts from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, they can try and shut down the facts, Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker, they can shut down the facts. They keep sort of unsubstantiated statements that aren't true, Honourable Speaker. The member, the opposition health leader, goes on six, uh, CKNW radio and says there's 64 health authority vice presidents making more than 400,000 dollars a year. That's not true. It's not true, honourable speaker. The average, the average salary is members, members. less than that, and that is a matter Please. of public record, honourable speaker. So, honourable speaker, all I would say is this: Kai Hai says administration costs going down as a share of our budget. The facts say they're going down as a share of the budget, Honourable Speaker. And the reason why is we want, to the maximum extent possible, every dollar to go into patient care, and that's what we are working to do.
the bell ends the question period.